Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, podcast listeners. Welcome to the A World of Difference podcast. We have so many guests on this show making a difference in our lives, making a difference all around the world with the expertise that they bring. And yet so many of you are reaching out to me saying, you want more. It's not enough, just what we're putting on these podcast episodes for you. And so I am here to extend a very warm welcome to you to our Difference Maker community where you can join for as little as $5 a month to get all this extra content out the gate. You're going to get 30 plus mini-sodes of exclusive content not available for the regular podcast listeners and an exclusive mini-sode every month. And you'll get exclusive voting power to help us pick podcast topics and more. And that's with our changers tier. There's three different main tiers and then an extra uh, larger tier. But whatever tier that you join at, you will be included in this extra content. And I know that many of you are wanting to go a little bit deeper. And so even though it gets a little wild in there sometimes because of how deep we go, I want you to join us there. This extra content is very special. It means a great deal to me to be a part of this community with you. And I would love to just exchange uh, ideas or perspectives that you have around these different episodes. And that's the place where we do it. So please show up to our Difference Maker community. Give us $5 out of your pocket every month. And I think that you'll have a lot of fun in there because we do. And I would love for you to join us. So go to patreon.com slash a world of difference to join us there. Welcome to the A World of Difference podcast. I'm Lori Adams Brown, and this is a podcast for those who are different and want to make a difference. Our guest today is Mektis Hadis. And she comes to us as an author of a newly released book, A Just Mission, Laying Down Power and Embracing Mutuality. Mektis is the founder and executive coach of Just Missions, an online community that elevates diaspora voices and equips Western allies to become mutual partners for the work of the gospel. She's originally from Ethiopia. She moved to the United States in 2003. She has a BS in communications from Liberty University and a master's degree in organizational leadership from Columbia International University. And she's recently joined as project director for the National Association of Evangelicals as the Racial Justice and Reconciliation Collaborative project director. She's worked in several churches, building discipleship and outreach strategies that are holistic in their approach to include people on the margins. She and her family live in South Carolina. I'm so excited to talk to this author today, Mektis Hadis. Mektis, hi. Thank you so much for coming on the A World of Difference podcast today. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Well, I know all of us around the world feel very honored to get to hear some of the things that you're going to talk about today with your new book. And just thank you for taking the time to bring your perspective to us here today. I know that Absolutely. on the A World of Difference podcast, we celebrate different backgrounds and experiences and perspectives. So give us a little synopsis of who you are and what your background is all about. 
Sure. So I am originally from Ethiopia. I was born and raised there. I grew up in the capital city, Addis, Addis Ababa. Um, so, you know, my family is all Ethiopians. I grew up uh, very much exposed to Western culture. Um, and I talk about that in my book, um, that it was an intentional introduction to the culture on my parents' behalf, because both of them um, were educated. Well, they are educated. You know, my dad went on up to his master's. My mom has done her undergrad. And so, you know, I grew up in a family that was well-read, you know, traveled around the world, things like that. So they understood that in order to survive in the global market, their kids needed to be exposed to the Western culture. So um, I grew up pretty aware. I, I often talk about it as um, you know, I had everything um, an American or any first world country um, young girl would have, uh, except for um, like the opportunity to go further. So like I could go as far as Ethiopia would let me go. Yeah. But when it came time for me, you know, once I reached that kind of um, status or like that time when I was about to go to college and, you know, embark on this journey of forming a career and kind of thinking about my future. Uh, my parents knew that Ethiopia or the the resources that we had there was not going to allow me to push as further as they wanted me to. So that's when they made the decision to send me to America. So I came here for college. Um, and yeah, I went to a Christian school here in the U.S., um, and then, you know, went on to be to pursue full time ministry. Um, so now I have, you know, I'm married to my husband. I have two little kids, eight and three. Um, and I think I miss my siblings <laughs> in my introduction, but I have uh, three other siblings. So, so, yeah, I come from a family that is very connected and communal and miss them a lot every day. <laughs> I'm sure you do. It's so hard to be far away from family. I certainly understand that. It's mm -hmm. not ever easy, yeah. especially when your family's close like yours is. And so yes. I I know that um, some of the things you talk about in your book are going to kind of bring in those nuances of, you know, probably Western individualism and more collectivist mm -hmm. societies that are very opposite. I I definitely grew up in both of those worlds and they're very mm -hmm. opposite in a lot of ways. So, mm -hmm. but give us a little high level about why you wrote this book. Yeah. So I wrote the book because, um, again, as I mentioned, I'm in full-time ministry. And as I was interacting with Westerners in this work, I started realizing that they didn't have uh, the context to think about a person like me as, um, co-laborer in the work that they're doing. Uh, they have been um, bombarded by, you know, the media or even within the religious organization and how uh, brown and black people are uh, talked about as receivers mm -hmm. and as those that need the help that they didn't have a box for me when I came as this emboldened leader, you know, who's saying to them, hey, I can do this with you. Sometimes I can lead you to it. Yeah. They were kind of like, wait, 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 we don't have a box to put you in. So I experienced this otherness. Um, they kept kind of either pushing the request that I make um, to, you know, kind of delaying the requests or kind of 
um, offending me in some instances where they would kind of say we what they were communicating without them realizing it was that way you're supposed to be meeting my biased expectations to be, you know, a poor, like beggar type of yeah. person, not be a person fully dignified and demanding an equal opportunity. Um, and, you know, just because I was either a woman or I was a black woman or I was an immigrant, I didn't meet all their requirements. So I just found myself frustrated over and over again, being put in these boxes that I did not see myself as that I saw myself as a fully dignified person who had something to contribute. Um, And so, um, yeah, that just made me kind of realize that there's no framework to talk about these issues, uh, especially in the context of the mission movement. And we need to talk about it because if we're going to interact with cultures from around the world, it matters how you treat those people that are your neighbors that are from around the world, right? Like you can't just go around the world saying, hey, let me fix the world's problems when you don't even know how to interact with your neighbor next door who comes from that context. So I thought that was just a big missing piece in this conversation. Yes. And I just so appreciate you bringing your perspective. I mean, you have full freedom here to share your perspective because we need it. (laughs) And um. I think that multiple voices saying the exact same thing that you are are, are going to be needed to get mm-hmm. the attention because being silent about these things, being polite, being nice, yes, which Western mm-hmm. – I would say white Western, particularly American white evangelical church um, yes. has really – those spaces when I'm in them, um, as a white woman, even though I've, you know, culturally have – a lot of Latina in me and have lived in Asia for 20 years, mm-hmm. um, presenting as a white woman, I'm always kind of ushered into this world of just be quiet and nice and just sit there mm-hmm. and, you know, be pretty. And, you know, yeah. um, I'm sure as a black woman, you get various versions of what that looks like, even though you're African, you're probably often considered exactly. African-American and like, are you a descendant uh-huh. of slaves? You're like, no, I'm Ethiopian. Uh-huh. There's so many stereotypes uh-huh. that put on you when you walk exactly. in the room. I have an mm-hmm. Ethiopian friend here in the Bay Area who's actually very well off. Her dad's like a famous um, Olympian runner and she has mm. a big YouTube channel. People know her wherever she goes, but in, you know, Ethiopians recognize her as a high status, but often Americans mm-hmm. will treat her as yep. She's from Oakland or something. I mean, you know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. How's that been for you here in America? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a pretty accurate description of what I've encountered as well. And again, because I did come from a family that was able to give me everything and more, I was not about to take that, you know, from anybody, right? A lot of people um, don't have the privilege of confronting uh, these biases because they need to get by, they need to survive, or they just don't have the just the emotional bandwidth to go through that. But I think for me, um, it was about timing, about when I was going to address it, but I was going to address it yeah. because I did not come for uh, seeking to, to um, be, you know, white or seeking to have proximity to whiteness. I came to build upon what was given to me already. I I was pretty solid on my identity and being an Ethiopian woman. I was pretty solid on my identity as a Christian woman. Um, I was pretty solid on my identity as, you know, somebody who came 
to explore and add on. So when people kind of put on these identities, even I remember, I think I wrote, yeah, I wrote this in the book when the first time somebody called me an immigrant, it just felt like this insult, you know, although I knew like the dictionary meaning just meant a transplant, you know, or like somebody, this is not your home, but it just hurt in a sense, Mm -hmm. or kind of had this shame, um, factor to it. And I remember kind of thinking twice, why did I feel this way? And that was the first time it kind of stung. Mm. And because the way the conversation went, I was talking with a coworker and he was just, he had issues, ego issues, (laughs) but he, uh, you know, he just needed to put me down, you know, or put me in my place as he thought what my place would be. And so I remember him asking me, questions that were not appropriate about, you know, my visa status or this and that. And then eventually he said to me, oh, so you're an immigrant then, you know, he, he was looking for a weakness in a sense. And he threw that out there. And I remember feeling defeated because that was like a back and forth where he was trying to find something to tell me that he was better than me, you know? Um, because I've always been very vocal about my perspectives. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to back down from an argument. You know, if I didn't believe in something, I was going to say something about it. And so when he used that term, it almost as a derogatory term, I remember thinking, wow, this is, it hurts. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's weird. Although I know the meaning, it's still the way it was used was just yeah. hurtful. Yeah. Um. And so, yeah, so people do put on these a preconceived notion or their own biased thoughts on you and, you know, expect you to carry it. And we have to do the hard work of pushing it back off, which is not fair. You yeah. know, that's why, again, the book really examines what does justice, seeking justice look like, because mm-hmm. it's not fair. It's not just for me to experience um, that. I didn't come here for that. I came here to live my life and excel, you know, not to be bantering about my identity with anybody who has no business trying to define it for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I am who God made me to be and I have the right to live fully. And in that, I see no shame in it. But this um, colonized mindset, this, you know, supreme um, thought that whiteness or Western culture is better than everything else allows people to think that even the way they see us is like, oh, they, they're trying to get close to me because I am better. You know, there's that belief mm-hmm. that whiteness is better. And, you know, I'm like, no, I am made in God's image equally as you are. I'm not going to deny that you are dignified in who God has made you, but also I'm not going to deny my dignity as well. Mm. Um, And so, yeah. So good. I just really love hearing your perspective. It's just like a balm for the soul. (laughs) It really is. But I know that you've been through so much, like, and that's the Mm -hmm. hard part of the story. You know, even the phraseology, immigrant versus expat, you know, like yes. I've lived overseas and I was referred to as an expat because I had white privilege, exactly. you know, and then even expats I knew in Singapore when they would apply for a permanent residency, which is essentially what immigrants are doing in the United States. Yeah. Uh, we would have been called PR, like permanent residency. We never mm-hmm. were called immigrant, you know, Immigrants, and so exactly. it's all like the language is so important and it shows our biases and it also demeans and puts hierarchies yes. there that shouldn't exist. So I do want to get into some of your 
unpack a little bit in your book, but I, I want to just capture this moment for our listeners because I think sometimes we miss the humanity of this moment we are sharing, these mm-hmm. microaggressions that somebody like you is facing all the time. Um, but you, what's special about your situation is um, you are <laughs> you are basically an expat who presents as black as a black woman, a woman of color here in America. Exactly. And so mm-hmm. I always find the stories of the Africans in the United States who have moved here to have a very special voice in this. And mm. so tell me more of how that feels to be often mistaken as somebody whose history I mean, it is traumatic. Everybody I know mm-hmm. who's a descendant of enslaved peoples here in America is carrying trauma in their bodies. But how are exactly. you perceiving it as somebody from the outside and how do you experience those moments of racism and microaggression toward you? Yeah, I think in the beginning, it was kind of confusing because I myself didn't know American history to that extent. You know, I just knew that there were black people in America and then there were white people. I remember watching Roots when I was little, Mm -hmm. you know, and I remember that story, but I just thought that was fictional. I really had no idea, you know, it was part of American history. Um, I mean, it's not something we talk about often. We talk about slavery, but it just didn't click mm. that those des- descendants of slaves, you know, or enslaved people um, mm-hmm. uh, lived, you know, in different parts of the world and they're still carrying trauma. Yeah. And so I think in the beginning, and and then I, I do want to address when you're coming to America, especially as an African, it's typically not all, but for the most part, those of us that come to go to school, we're kind we're part of like the brain, the brain drain um, of, you know, like this educated or potential to to be educated and contribute to their country. Mm -hmm. People that are like the top of, you know, the, 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 cream or whatever are being brought here with either diversity visa or scholarship opportunities, whatever, yeah. to get educated here. And then you stay here and kind of become one of the pillars of the economy here. Yeah. And so there's that in terms of knowing, oh, I'm here because of the specific talent I have, or I'm here because of the specific opportunity that is given to me there's like this privilege that has brought you here, Mm -hmm. but then you come and then you're being told, Oh, no privilege for you because you are black, you know, and none of the things apply to you. And then you see it. um, Well, like at school, I saw it in my white passing, I guess, uh, international students, the types of opportunities they got right out of college, and those of us who are black, and the types of opportunities we got. And that I remember just was very frustrating, Mm -hmm. because, again, I knew who I was, and I knew what I could present, and the capacity that I have. But I saw some that may not be as, you know, well read or whatever, getting certain opportunities because of how they were, were perceived. Yeah. They, they're just, America was their oyster. You know, yeah. they, they were able to explore. They, they were able to get their green card processed faster, easier. Yeah. There were more opportunities for them, whereas um, some of my friends had to go back to their countries, wow. you know, the ones that were Black. Mm-hmm. And so it's really unfortunate to experience that. But then to answer the question of, like, being confused with, you know, a a black African-American person, 
I, I don't think I ever kind of felt like, why do they look at me as an African-American? I don't have an issue with that, yeah. you know. But I think I did, again, I was not as informed as I am, but I did struggle with this kind of less than attitude they would give me, yeah. you know, and I'm always, I was always like, why? Like, why? There was that curiosity in me. Why do they look at Black people differently? Mm. Um, and so that did kind of cause me to start asking questions, learn a little bit more about, you know, yeah. Black history. Um and it wasn't until I, I got connected with a racial reconciliation group that would meet and talk about these issues that I really connected the dots. Oh, my gosh, these are, you know, descendants of enslaved people. These are yeah. people who do desire to connect back to their roots. And they are my people, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. because they're from, you know, from Africa. Yeah. And and so it was a journey. Um, but, and, and one thing I would also mention is that there, there is this perceived animosity between Africans and African Americans. And I would say that is something that we were pitted against each other yeah. for the sake of, you know, we were pushed, those of us that came to America, to America for, you know, opportunities were told we were better because, we're not as lazy, you know, or whatever the term that they want to use to dehumanize right. black people. Yeah. Um, and they kind of present to you this trophy, um, the model mi minority trophy, and you're told, oh, look at you, you're a model minority. Right. And in order for you to continue to excel as this, you know, immigrant or this expat, you start attaching yourself to whiteness again proximity to whiteness yeah. came in the form of being the model minority that was something I never sat, sat well with me yeah. and I rejected mm. even in uh, people that welcomed me you know family members that first helped me kind of integrate into the American society they would say things like oh don't don't go into you know this part of the the city you know whatever and I just always kind of felt like why are you demonizing yeah. people that look like me, you know, mm -hmm. like it's us. If they weren't here, we would not, if they didn't fight for black, the rights of, you know, black people, yeah. I would not be here today sitting and talking to you. Right? right. And so there's that gap that was created, especially in the early stages of immigration from Africa. Yeah. So like the older generation mm. probably still holds on to that minor model minority concept but those of us you know who know the truth who, yeah. who have come um and you know know our identity um are a little bit further away from colonization even of africa yeah. as a whole um we understand that that is just the divide and conquer you know technique um that westerners have used to divide us and kind of yeah. you know um yeah and so yeah that's wow. me. I guess that answers. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely does. Thank you so much for bringing the nuance to this conversation. It's very helpful. Yeah. And I hope that our listeners around the world are able to apply that story of yours to their local context in a variety mm -hmm. of ways because model minority myths are in, in a lot of cultures I've been in. Yeah. Um, and we definitely see it here in California with Asian Americans pit against African Americans. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of work that's been done post George Floyd and that and, and everything, which is really yeah. beautiful. But yeah, thank you for bringing out that nuance. I think it's so important for us to understand sure. there's, there's not a monolith out there. There's so many different yep. varieties of how exactly. people experience 
things, whether they're in the South or in California, mm-hmm. even the U.S. is very different. Mm-hmm. So, um, but let's dig into a little bit. I want you just to um, have full freedom to share your perspective without restraint um, because we really, we want to honor your voice and your experience here and what we have to learn from you today. And so when you talk about Western mission, you know, it often centers the senders. I mm-hmm. wholeheartedly agree with you about this. It's something I myself have had to fight um, throughout my mm-hmm. career um, and mm-hmm. often not understanding the receiver's experiences. Um, I've seen this done very well. I've seen it done very badly. I'm sure you may have seen both too, but you, yeah. you want to weave together, you know, the theology and the stories of these diaspora groups as sure. well. So you're an Ethiopian American now and um, mm-hmm. you're a mission practitioner and you provide this post-colonial critique of Western mission where mm-hmm. upending white savior complex and arguing for a globally just approach how does this look and what are some of the biggest things we need to be aware of or work on ourselves as we have this conversation? Yeah. So because, you know, the mission movement uh, obviously is a Christian concept and um, I do want to kind of lean it into scripture and talk a little bit about that. So basically the church or Christianity was birthed out of the mission movement when Jesus told his disciples after, you know, he died on the cross for our sin and was resurrected after three days when he was ascending into heaven um, um, after, I think, 40 days on earth. um, He gives his disciples the command to go into all the nations and teach them to observe everything I've commanded you and go into all the nations and make disciples out of them. And so that's kind of what gives Christians permission to go and say, hey, let me tell you about this Jesus that I love and has been doing this amazing thing in my life and give us permission to go and, you know, share the gospel with the world. That is what the mission movement is. Um, But for Christians, it's been such a murky history because um, even just starting from the Catholic church and how Christianity was spread, you know, around the world, it was through colonization and they used the cross as a means of colonizing countries. And the evangelical movement didn't really go further from that. They've used methods of, you know, planting schools in different parts of the world and they would teach them their language instead of going and learning the language of the you know, the culture and then starting a school and using that language to help people kind of understand their own context. What Western missionaries did was go into a community. They would um, teach them their own language. So English would be the language. And then people start conforming to their language, which means language has culture in it. So your culture starts shifting and you become a practitioner of a culture that you have no connection to. And so what, and then you become a Christian through that context. And now you're a Christian of basically a culture that you're unaware of because it was introduced to you through methods that is now familiar to you or those around you. And what that did was it isolates, it isolates Christians from the rest of the community. When Jesus came into this world, the ironic part is when he came to the world, Although he was God, he chose to come in the form of man. You know, he came, you know, and and was born of a woman. He lived 30 years of his life as a normal person. And then from 30 to 33 and a half, he 
did his ministry. He went around and, you know, healed people, told them about the eternal life that he can give them. And he had so many followers, but out of the many, he produced 12 faithful disciples who are with him when he gave this commission to go around the world. So the way he modeled it was he became one of us and then learned our language, you know, lived with us for 30 years. Then he decided to reveal himself as, you know, fully God, fully human and tell us about the eternal life that awaits us if we choose to follow him. The way that Western Christians have practiced mission is the complete opposite. Mm. They would go into these cultures and then basically affirm to these cultures, whether it's through the use of their money, their knowledge, their power, you know, their whiteness, whatever it may be, to say, you need to look as to to practice our cultures, you need to look as similar as we are to, and you know, no matter what that costs, so that you can know the God that we know and follow him the way that we follow him, you know, and that's completely wrong. Yeah. And so in places like Ethiopia, we have uh, Christianity um, has been in Ethiopia since the first century. Right. Like <laughs> it's one of the first Christian countries, yes, you know, in, in the, the world. scriptures, yeah. <laughs> It's in the scriptures, but you have in the 19th century, you have missionaries who have come and planted churches. So it's like this new, mm. you know, like concept, which, which is Western evangelical, yeah. you know, Christianity. And it has torn our culture apart because it's such, um, a lot of people call it like this, you know, baby, baby you know, faith and baby culture. Like it's just, yeah. it's like acting like a toddler because it hasn't been cultivated. It's not part of our arts. It's not yeah. part of our music. It's just not part of anything that we do. Mm -hmm. And so we have created like this subculture that have, instead of becoming, you know, subversive and kind of studies where people are and, you know, shares the love of Christ with others, it's become like, um, very demanding, demeaning, kind of like mm. telling other Christians, like Orthodox Christians, that they're not believers because they're not following Jesus the way the Western, wow. you know, missionary has introduced them yeah. to them. And that's one example. There's yeah. just so many other ways. Like if we look at women, um, and again, I write about this in the book, women have suffered through this Western evangelical movement because they were told like, you have to wear long dresses and wear like a hat when you go to church and things like that. Um, or, you know, as part of your fashion, you just had to really change who you were. Mm -hmm. And in Ethiopia, as we are becoming more modern, women are starting to go to college and get educated and become as equally um, so, you know, supporting their family and breadwinners as their husbands. And so when they got, they came to know the Lord through the evangelical movement, they had to make a choice. Like, do I take a step back and become like, uh, you know, dress the way these people are dressing and be quiet and humble and not lead and, you know, talk, talk about whatever my opinion, or do I continue pursuing my career? And it's detrimental to a country and a society that is just coming out of like poverty or yeah. that's trying to cultivate and kind of move into a modern era of doing things. We already are very close to the rural parts of our country are still practicing, you know, old methods of um, 
marriage, you know, yeah. like some ch- children getting married and things like that, where women have to subdue and do certain things. It mirrors the things that we're trying to leave behind mm. so much that it's created disruption. And so instead of Christians being these um quite spirited, you know, followers of Jesus who are reconcilers and peacemakers, yeah. they've become like these just loud and disruptive caricature, you know. And so they they formed a resentment towards the evangelical movement rather than so as a whole, our culture has kind of resisted it. Like yeah. if you become one of them, like parents would say, I don't want to associate with you. And the irony is that the church would tell the evangelical church will tell people, Oh, you're being persecuted for Jesus, but they're not being persecuted for Jesus. They're being persecuted for being a Westerner or acting as one, you know? And Mm. so it's such a very interesting complex topic that we have a lot of work to do in our culture. Uh, Those of us who consider ourselves evangelical really have a work of reconciliation that awaits us. Mm. It's just heartbreaking. My heart breaks with you for your country and that mm-hmm. that's been the history and the name of Christianity. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mm-hmm. so agree with you. Followers of Jesus should practice cultural humility, but our history yeah. as Christians, and I use the word our because these are our ancestors. Like, you know what I yes. mean? Like, mm-hmm. even though, I mean, I do my work myself, there's still work to do because um, yes. we all have betrayal, blindness, and blind spots. And so mm-hmm. that's why we need a diversity of perspectives speaking into us. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, I've seen it done very, very well with a lot of humility, even Westerners going in, mm-hmm. um, you know, learning from Filipinos, learning from Indonesians, learning from Malay people and the different mm-hmm. countries where I work, learning from um, Latin Americans. I mean, there's just been such a history, whether it's Dutch colonization of Indonesia, whether it's British in the Malay speaking world, whether it was like Spanish and Italians where I grew up in here in California. Um, you know, our curriculum that our public schools teach in fourth grade, it's very much, um, deconstructs the whitewashing Mm. of what it meant for missions to be built here by the Spaniards. This used to be Spain, Mm. Mexico colonized Mm -hmm, Spain. mm -hmm. And so, yeah, Yeah. there were bad, 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 horrible things that happened. It's hard Mm -hmm. to hold the good and the bad. I think that's really one of the Mm. hardest works to do is to say it wasn't all bad or we would have definitely thrown that whole thing out. There were good things, which is why we held on. And I think sometimes in Christianity, we overemphasize these verses that say, think about good things. Don't think about bad things. Mm -hmm. Don't talk bad. Don't gossip. Mm -hmm. Don't slander. But if we can't lament what was wrong, if we can't uh, learn from our history so as not to repeat it, I don't think that's Mm -hmm. what those verses mean for us today. And so Mm -hmm. I thank you Mm -hmm. so much for your voice on this. I really am interested in your answer to this question, Uh, you know, because we were talking about cultures here and um, mm-hmm. any culture coming from the outside to do anything, whether it's business, tech, education, Christian mission, even Islam, bringing Arabic as a mm-hmm. language to Indonesia, like all these things, any culture coming from the outside could dominate another culture. That's yeah. it's, a, it's just mm-hmm. something you should be aware of. I think mm-hmm. there's though, would you agree there are unique factors about European cultures or even I would, I would include Japanese culture and their colonization of Indonesia mm-hmm. just because of their dominance in the world at different levels. But they have a history of colonization 
for the European, mm-hmm. so many European cultures, um, and dominance. And there's this hierarchy mm-hmm. globally that we view, especially with whiteness, even if it's not perceived mm-hmm. the same everywhere. And Japanese and some versions of whiteness, even in America, have been included at different points. So that's very complicated. Mm-hmm. Um How do you see a difference of, for example, a black African going to another culture and bringing their embodiment (laughs) versus a white person moving in for whatever reason? How is that different? And I know that this might at the risk of really upsetting some people. I just really want your perspective on it um, because this is your expertise. So go for it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think the obvious is what we talked about earlier in terms of even when we go into different parts of the world, uh, we are given a name of privilege or a name that takes away that privilege. So, you know, a black person going into um, anywhere in the world is seen either as an immigrant or just because of what whiteness has done to blackness, you know, and when I see blackness or whiteness, I'm talking about cultures, not not necessarily like a white person individual doing this, but as a whole, um, I don't think as a black um, individual, you hold that much social power. But when you do go as a white person, you are given this. uh, And this is such an interesting way to think about it. I remember we were having a conversation with a group of diverse women. And I remember what we appreciated about our culture. And one of our friends, a white woman said, she said, I love how my culture tells me that the world is my oyster, you know? And that was something that she, yeah, she was aware of, (laughs) you know? I mean, I appreciate that she's aware of it, right? But uh, it was interesting to me. And then she also talked about how, fitness was part of her culture, Mm. you know, which is, again, very interesting. (laughs) Um, But, you know, like she was doing her work of kind of Mm. understanding her privilege. And those were the two things that she saw as benefits of her culture. And I always think about that, because when a white person goes into a different culture, that is the, whether they think about the world as their oyster or not, because of how whiteness has dominated the world, it is your your oyster. You know, people yeah. do give you the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's funny, like, you if you go on a mission trip, like on a medical trip, right. if the black person is the doctor and the white person is the assistant, yeah. you, can see, you can observe and see who people are going to gravitate to mm-hmm. and expect their medical, you know, answers to be answer, uh, given from. So there is just this work that has been done to prepare the way for the white man or women to come and save the world. And that is not something that we can negate, whether you can, you know, uh, you can deny it as much as you want. But (laughs) if you really do see it, like open your eyes and are curious about this, it's very, very evident to see. Mm. Um, Yeah, so I would say that's, you know, people are, even in my own experience, I went on a mission trip, I've been on a few mission trips to Ethiopia, and that's specifically unique because I speak the language, so I hear what people are saying. And I remember like, you know, especially older people saying, I want, I want the white doctor, you know, I want him to, to be the yeah. one to check on me or like demanding that I translate, um, 
I, I went as a translator and I remember them saying, make sure you translate everything that I'm saying. And I would say, yeah, that's what I did. And they're like, no, no, no. You, you said something short, like make sure you tell them, you know, and it, it just was kind of like, they, they really wanted the white people to come and touch them or they were just indoctrinated to believe that if they're given, you know, vitamins by a white person, it's going to work better than their local, you know, doctor giving it to them. So Mm -hmm. there's the market for it. The the market is there. Yeah. I mean, the the white savior is a real phenomenon that, yeah, Yeah. both as people who are white and have to do the work of not wanting to be that we can't mm-hmm. save anybody. That's Jesus's role. Um, mm-hmm. but also, you know, helping can hurt sometimes it really can. And that's, yes. that's just mm-hmm. the really serious work we all have to do. Um, mm-hmm. and I just so appreciate you bringing your perspective to this. I would love for you. There are people listening to this who are maybe having to pause right now because they just got really triggered by that whole conversation. Mm. Either they're the white person who's like, that's not true. Mm -hmm. I don't do that. Or they're a person who's been harmed by white supremacy Mm -hmm. or whiteness, wherever they are in the world. I -hmm. mean, the world is not only my oyster as a white woman, but even in the United States, I don't have to choose where I go on vacation and and find a place that's not going to shoot my kids or, I mean, I, I just really, I have a lot of freedom even in the United States. Um, so what would you say to somebody who has been harmed, um, by this kind of white supremacist, white savior mentality and missions by people who don't even realize they've done it? What is your word for them Mm -hmm. as they hear this, as they process that trauma? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I would say I, you know, lament with you. I'm sorry. That is a very difficult thing to experience. Um, Yeah. And I think I would say that, know that that was the sin of humans. That was not God's design for your life or how God sees you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really interesting when we are in fellowship with people who look like us and, um, even don't look like us, you can see the way that we we can reflect God's image to one another. I have a group of women that I meet with once a month, and these are women of color. And we talk about our experiences and just kind of challenge each other because we find ourselves leading in white spaces. Mm-hmm. And it's really important for us to hear how each other views one another because in a lot of the spaces that we're in, the norm, the majority is the norm. Therefore, our views and our perspectives, as you know, as much as they're given space to be heard, we're also pushed, you know, alone. Like we we are pushed for the perspective that we have. Um, and so it's, it could do such a damage in your identity and even sometimes questioning yourself, like, is this real? Should I just kind of submit to the desires of the the majority and just kind of be quiet and put my head down and live, you know, just my regular life. So I would say it is not God's design. God has made you exactly who you are, you know, the skin color that you are, the life experiences that you have, and he has you in spaces that he wants you 
um, to exist in, in your fullness. And it is really because of sin and how broken this world is that we are experiencing these injustices and these power dynamics. And so, and that sin comes in the form of racism. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just want people to really hone in the fact that this is not God's design for, for, you know, for their lives yeah. and that God wants something better and different. Um, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. So good. It's so good to hold space for that because it, it's just happening over and over again, not just microaggressions, which can feel like death from a thousand paper cuts, but some very serious situations, mm-hmm. um, that are systemic, that are, um, yes. horrible and unspeakable in some cases throughout mm-hmm. history, but even now it's, it's still, um, yeah. it's a huge, huge issue in the United States and around the world. And so thank you for speaking to those who have been harmed by it. Um, mm. I would I would love for your perspective on what is the way forward for those who recognize um, they've done some mm-hmm. harm and want to correct their mistakes. What would you say to them as a way to start working on that? Yeah, I think the first way step is curiosity. Be curious about other cultures. Um, I have my best friend um, Heather who. I remember we got so close so quickly. She's, you know, white and in college because she is such a good question asker. (laughs) That's what I tell her. She has like the best questions. She's just naturally a very curious person. And she was the first person that made me realize like, oh, I have so much to give, you know, in this cultural context because I was just bombarded by so much unfamiliarity, but she held space for me by asking more and more. And she brought my, um, like my cultural norm out of me. And I was free to practice them around her because she was building context for herself, you know, and she just was naturally that type of person. But to this day, she's one of those people that truly gets my culture and truly like she's tried to learn the language and all of that and just natural curiosity, you know? And so I would say that is really the first step Mm -hmm. before even listening, before even practicing mutuality, before doing anything, just be curious enough to learn and make space in your life. A lot of times when you're from a majority culture, you're very comfortable in your culture and there is no pain that makes you have to learn about another culture, right? Like for those of us who are minorities in spaces, like if I, if I don't speak the language fluently, nobody's going to hire me in a manager position. You know, you need to be able to communicate well with people. Or if I'm not going to be able to look at nuances, nobody's going to allow me to oversee a project or whatever. Yeah. I have something to lose. So I, I got to be curious by default right. just to survive. But for those who have the privilege of not opening up their eyes or their ears, it has to be a spiritual practice of, you know, really being curious because you want to love the people that God loves. Mm. You know, you want to relate to God's image bearers. Like we are all made in his image. So the more I listen to you, the more I get to see him through you, like how he reveals himself to you. How do you see him? How do you worship him? What makes you excited in the world? And that just expands my view of God and who he is and how he's created this beautiful, complex world. And so I would say just be curious. 
That's so good. You actually answered another one of my questions, which is who do you see doing this well? So shout out to Heather, wherever she is. Yes. <laughs> That's so beautiful. And I'm so glad you had a friend like that early on to help mm-hmm. you. Um, as somebody who's crossed a lot of cultures, grew up third culture and has had to do my own code switching, I understand how hard that can be um, being yes. a minority in a majority culture. Um, even with my white privilege, it was still a challenge, mm-hmm. a huge challenge, um, especially under Islamic law, which was very, very opposite of how I had grown up. But um, I love that Heather helped you do that and still helps you celebrate who you are mm-hmm. and hold space for you as you – it can be exhausting to code switch all yeah. the time. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, yeah, I, I want us to kind of um, hear my kind of last major question for you as you're – you're um, stepping into this uh, new role that you've been in for about six months, right? A National Association of Evangelicals. And so how do you imagine this working well? What is the work you're hoping to see and mm-hmm. globally in terms of mission, yeah. how that can play out? Yeah. So um, I love the work I do at the NA because I believe the racial justice and reconciliation here in America is the pathway to a robust and just global mission Mm. movement. So, you know, in my book, I talk about how we need to bring it back home. We cannot export something that we're not practicing at home. And, you know, God by his design gifted me this role to be able to work with denominational leaders and, you know, um, parachurch organizations to be able to help them kind of create a pathway of understanding racial justice and reconciliation engaged for those that have not engaged it to be able to engage it for those that are engaging to be able to now figure out steps to take and for those who are taking the step to champion them and kind of help them you know go further so that's the work that I'm doing and I'm excited to you know to have my foot in it and just I'm still getting acclimated but that is the vision and the excitement and I believe in it so much because when we do have churches who are cross-cultural here at home, who don't define people by their like lack of financial, um, you know, um, wellness, but they define them by being image bearers of God, then they become better partners in ministry around the globe. But that's something that we have to hold pastors and church leaders and, you know, parachurch leaders accountable for because they are exporting unprepared people and they're doing it by the masses you know the the amount of money like america spends on missionaries is about four billion a year that's like short-term missions and it's part of the tourism industry and that's like haiti's um one year budget basically as a whole country and can you imagine like the amount of money being invested in something that is so futile, like it is not working. So let's pour all of that resource in working together and becoming brothers and sisters here and creating, you know, breaking down the barriers like redlining, red line districts still exist in parts of our cities that's something we don't talk about, but we go to part of the world and we're like, let's do justice for this country. And it's like, (laughs) Oh, but you're, you're people, your own neighbors. Right. <laughs> so there's so much work to be done. And I think when we succeed in that, we become 
better partners. Um, and I don't necessarily say it's an either or. Yeah. I think you can do both right. at the same time. Mm -hmm. But I think we need to scale back the sending because we're just not sending the right people. Um, and we need to focus on sending diaspora leaders or second generation leaders who are more acclimated, you know, into th this conversation who can do mutuality better, mm. um, who are probably able to use less money for, you know, and do more stuff <laughs> right. and quicker. Um, right. And so just, you know, but that that mutuality is not going to come unless we see each other as brothers and sisters and have closer proximity. Mm. So there's a lot of um, work that needs to be done. And I, I'm thankful that my work at the NA allows me to to focus on that. I'm thankful too. Wow. They are so blessed to have you. And Thank what you. a I'm glad they snatched you up when you were available at the right time. I really <laughs> yeah, no, it's amazing to think about what you could contribute there. And uh, your voice is so important. Your scholarship. Thank you Thank for writing you. this book. Thank you for bringing Thank your you. beautiful culture here to this country. <laughs> I'm here now too with you. Thank so you. <laughs> we love Ethiopian food. We have a favorite Ethiopian restaurant well, nearby. So oh my gosh, it's a whole experience and the coffee and just yes. all of it. <laughs> yes. So the yes. Coffee always. <laughs> always the coffee, yes. Yes. Well, I'm just thrilled to have had this conversation with you today. I'd love for you to let our listeners know where they can find you, find your book, and all you're going to be doing. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much again. Um, so anywhere, Instagram, um, you know, Twitter, wherever you want to find me, you can find me under Mekdes Hadis. Um, so my first name, last name, you know, you can find me on any social media link. And my website is also mekdeshadis.com. Um, and then my book is sold uh, anywhere books are sold. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Ivy Press is our my publisher. So you can find them, um, find it on their website as well. Thank you so much, Megdis. And I Thank just you. am thrilled to be able to hear about how you're making a difference around the world with this book. I'm excited for people to read it. Definitely, everybody check out this book. It's very important to read. And reach out to her with your Thank questions, you. concerns. I'm sure she'd be happy to engage <laughs> with any of that. And yes. uh, all the work that she's doing at the National Association of Evangelicals. What a blessing to have Thank you there. Thank you so much. Of course, yes. Yeah, Thanks thank for being you. on the show today. Bye, Megdis. All right. Bye. Wow. Just loved her perspective. I uh, just, um, a place like Ethiopia where her roots are from and just the long history, the ancient history of Christianity there. When we think about the scriptures, we have so many, um, stories that are from that part of the world, the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, her, um, culture of origin of her ancestors there has such a deep and long and rich history with Christianity. And to think of um, Western Christianity arriving there and the mixture of all that and the way she explained it, her coming to the States, living in the United States and the mix of white evangelicalism and other forms of evangelicalism and even just mainline Christianity, all the different types of Christianity that you could experience here in the United States, being at Liberty University, which is overwhelmingly white with very few black people, men or women um, on that campus. And then um, going on to get her master's, it, just hearing even the nuance of that experience of finding a friend who was so curious about her culture there, um, that we're not bound by any of our own cultures, that any of us at any point could have curiosity that leads us to more knowledge and a deeper perspective and to consider 
thoughts we may not have had before to consider that we may have been wrong or our cultures may have taught us something very inaccurate with myths or stereotypes or just false narratives. And, and so when we compare the narratives with others and what they've been taught, then we kind of come to a better understanding of what's real and what's true. And when it comes to our faith, especially, that's so important. And I love that she's at the National Association of Evangelicals now working as a project manager around racial issues. It's so encouraging. I hope that she finds that space to be a place where her voice really does get heard. And thank God that she's been able to publish this book. That's one way we can learn from her and others who are speaking out from all the different perspectives. I find that people on the margins, women of color in particular, of all different um, types, so women who have African origins, women who have Latina origins, Asian women, especially ones who've been immigrants in other places like the United States and Australia, the UK, and just have the mixture of all these experiences are really, I'm learning so much from their books, from their thought leadership and Mactis included. I love her perspective along with so many others we've had here on their World of Difference podcast. It's such a privilege to get a front row seat to this, to hear from all these amazing thought leaders. I'm learning and growing along with each of you wherever you are in the world listening to these podcasts. And I'd love to hear what your reactions are to Mactis and her book, the way she's calling um, us to something deeper the way she's calling us to revisit mission and justice and understanding the dynamics of power and laying that down as followers of Jesus, those of us who, who follow Jesus and embracing that mutuality where the hierarchies and the power dynamics are just truly not there. And it's much harder as a person who's white, <laughs> it presents as white like I do. And, um, and for my white male friends in particular, this is a, a harder thing, but I'm actually proud to say that I know many white men doing this work and very, very deep work. And it's, it's work we all do. It's, um, you know, I think for somebody like Mectis, she had to learn her, she had to know her own culture, but she had to really study white culture because America in particular expects uh, assimilation. But that actually does all of us a disservice because then we miss out on the beautiful aspects of her Ethiopian culture. We want her to bring her culture and we want to be able to learn her culture too. And all the cultures that come here, we, we're so much richer in places like Australia, the UK, Singapore, um, Kuala Lumpur, all over the US, places anywhere, especially major cities where we're getting immigrants from around the world, like Germany. Um, these are all locations where we really can learn from the people coming to the shores um, around us and not just expect them to learn you know, our predominant culture, but that we learn theirs. And it's just this beautiful exchange where we can each show up fully ourselves. Um, but for a while, um, I think that we've often expected those who come to our shores in many places around the world to, to learn our ways, but for us to not learn theirs. And I just find that reading books by authors like Mekdes can be really helpful and enlightening and enriching for all of us. I love that she has so much in her book around, um, diaspora people that are going around the world for, you know, 
refugees, asylum seekers, immigrants of all kinds, expats, and how that's enriching cultures and faith communities everywhere. And that we can accept this idea of mutuality of partnership and how it looks different in every context and culture, but um, that we can learn to respect and honor the approach of local leaders wherever that is. And I, I certainly have um, learned so much from local leaders wherever I've been and um, and really am a richer person from it because of um, Filipinos that I've worked with, Indonesians, Singaporeans, that includes Chinese Singaporeans, Malay Singaporeans, Indian Singaporeans, so many types, and even here in the Bay Area, the different cultures that are here. I, I really hope that this conversation has inspired you to learn more. There's always more to explore, always more to learn about how to live this human life and to celebrate those differences, but also to bring them into our lives and our ways of thinking. So follow MacDess and her book, read it, <laughs> let us know what you think, come to the Facebook group and, and tell us how you've interacted with it, what you've learned, maybe what made you upset, made you angry that you disagreed with. Um, we're here for all of it. In the meantime, keep making a difference wherever you are. I really appreciate each of you who listen, who let me know how it's meaning so much to you. And I, I just, I really am honored to be able to sit here with you and bring these authors and thought leaders and change makers who are trying to restore things that are broken during this series. So thanks for hanging in there with us and uh, for making a difference wherever you are. We'll talk again next week. Bye. As we're finishing this episode, if you're thinking, I really wish I could learn more or go a little bit deeper. Well, that's what our Difference Maker community is for. I would love to welcome you in to join the rest of us there. Once again, um, it's only $5 a month to join the price of a latte at your local coffee shop. You can join at our Changers tier. Difference Makers is a community that really means so much to me. It's very special because each time I have a guest on the show, I record something um, outside of what we give to just the regular podcast audience where we go a little bit deeper and then I post those video episodes in this community and we can discuss them. But also at the very uh, beginning tier, which is our changers tier of this community, you'll get exclusive voting power and help pick podcast topics that give us you know, more of what we want from your perspective. You'll have access to exclusive um, 30 plus mini-sodes that aren't out there for the general public. And you'll get every month an exclusive monthly bonus mini-sode. At our Groundbreakers level, which is $10 a month, you can join and get all of that, but also priority access to submit questions to the podcast. And you'll get an additional two exclusive monthly bonus mini-sodes. And at our Trailblazers tier, which is $15 a month, the price of three lattes a month, um, you can get all of that plus also three exclusive monthly bonus minisodes um, and a patron shout out. So I would love for you to join us at any of those tiers. Um, it'll help you come into this community, be in the midst of all of us, other difference makers, and we'd love to hear your perspective. I certainly would. It's a place to engage more with me and the audience around what you like, what you're resonating with, and once again, go deeper with each of our guests. So please join us in this membership community. I would love to hear your perspective and love to share this extra content with you. So show up at patreon.com slash a world of difference. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, 
offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.